Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne in today's Western Germany that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence, it is full of events and narrations that represent European history like a microcosm. Caesar, Charlemagne, or Napoleon, you name it, they all have been here. It is the year 1941. The Second World War that Nazi Germany unleashed on the world has been raging for two years now. Besides the tank, the airplane is one of the means by which this new modern war is fought. The Germans know this all too well, for they themselves make extensive use of these terrible weapons of war. In 1941, Hitler issued the order to provide the big cities of the German Reich with bunkers. Also, in Cologne, at the Cologne Cathedral, construction work for bunkers started on the southern side on the forecourt. Wait a minute, did we skip 1800 years in our podcast now? Or why are we talking about World War II all of a sudden? No, no, dear listeners, we'll be right back at our tranquil Roman colony on the Rhine, this time between 100 till 250 CE. But we still must jump to the year 1941, because during the first excavations for building this bunker construction, the workers will come across an incredible treasure. A mosaic more than 70 square meters, or 750 square feet, richly decorated and with several million small tessala, comes to light in the depth of the excavation pit. And how it got there, and its history is, among other things, a part of this episode. When we take a walk to Roman Cologne, this time without any sewers or visits from Roman emperors, I promise. No, we'll just take a walk on a normal day in the Golden Age of Roman Cologne. Welcome back to the History of Cologne podcast. Glad you could make it to join me for a walk. In this episode, we leave the chronological path of our narrative. We are going to visit a Roman Cologne that might have been just like this, between the year 100 to 250 CE. This time span of 150 years was the golden age of Roman Cologne. And of course, we start outside of the city, more precisely in the north of it. We are on a road coming from today's city of Neuss, which is located further north of Cologne. Back then, a Roman military camp protecting the Rhine as a border to the barbaric east. Roman streets like this to Cologne all run like lines coming from every direction with the city itself as center of gravity. From a bird's eye view, you can see streets coming from the south, west and north, all going towards the metropolis on the Rhine. Our road to Neuss, for example, is one of the northernmost of these major roads, running virtually parallel to the Rhine. By the way, almost all these streets still exist today and are still named after the places to which they already led to 2000 years ago. The road in Cologne, going up north to Neuss, is still called Neusserstraße which means just Neuss Street. I choose this road for a reason. Firstly, it is the main street of Cologne, which I know best because I grew up on it. Secondly, it should lead us straight to the northernmost city gate of Cologne, which leads directly into the Hohe Straße, the street that we discussed intensively in the last episode, when I called it the Cardo Maximus, Cologne's most important inner main street. While on the other side of the eastern bank of the Rhine, the Romans once got lost in the Germanic forest and died in the Battle of Teutoburg Forest in 9 CE. 
The area around Cologne itself, which is on the western bank, is completely different. There is no forest left here to see for us as we walk towards Cologne. After more than a hundred years and more of settlements, every forest has been cut down. Space had to be made to create arable land that could supply the growing population. So the city must have been visible from far away with its high city walls surrounding it. We see here and there large latifundia, so-called ville rustiche, large estates on whose fields and plantations numerous slaves and employees work. But the closer we get to the city wall, the denser the cemeteries at both sides of the road become. Wait, really? Graves? Right by the side of the road? Yeah, you heard right. People always die. Sadly, they do. We can't help it. In Western Christian countries, death is largely suppressed from the public eye. The dead are on fenced-in areas at the edge of the city or even far away from the city center. For the Romans, it was out of the question at all to bury their dead within the city. They did this outside of the city. A funeral nowadays, with the exception of celebrities or great statespersons, is always a private affair of family, friends and acquaintances. The Romans, well, they had a completely different idea of funerals. Roman funerals were public events. As an undertaker, you will certainly never be unemployed, and in ancient times the death rate was much higher than in our times. Infant mortality, maternal mortality, occupational accidents, diseases and epidemics caused many more victims than we can imagine today. Poor people, of course, suffered more often from these categories than richer people, but despite some medical advances by ancient doctors, the Romans were far from today's medical standards. Death was a constant companion around you in daily life. And so it is not surprising that a huge funeral procession is coming towards us as we walk on this street. Let's take a closer look. The deceased man must have been from a wealthy family. Paid mourners mourn visibly and above all audibly exaggerated over the deceased. But they hardly knew him, or perhaps not at all. These ladies have been hired especially for this purpose and earn their living with it. Yes, there were women you could hire for that. The Romans were crazy. And of course your wealth decided where you would be buried. The richer you were, the closer to the road and the bigger the grave could be. What is especially bizarre for us as people of the 21st century, the deceased man is not only laid out in public in his coffin, no, he's not even a coffin at all, he sits upright in a sedan chair, his hair freshly cut and the best togas worn. Only the strong smell of perfume and preservatives and the motionless body tells us that the person present is not just quite as present anymore as he appears to be. But at least the guests are alive and present in large numbers. Unlike today, not only friends and family have come to this procession. The neighbors of the block also see it as their duty to take part in the funeral procession, no matter how well they knew the guy. If the deceased belonged to a certain profession, for example as a trader, our colleagues from the trader class who were in contact with him also took part in the procession. Funerals, sad as they are, were a visible part of public life back then. It was not possible on any day to walk along the Cado Maximus, today's Hohestrasse in Cologne, and not necessarily encounter a funeral procession. I don't want to get stuck on tombstones again, but after 2000 years, they are often our best source from that time, 
While I am talking that, I hear an emergency car right outside. I hope the person is well. Who needs it? And while the graves of the rich are big nowadays, they are often not as large as those of the rich Romans were. Before Christianity came around, the Romans preferred to burn their dead. The deceased, however, and this is no different in the case just described, is burned directly at the place of his grave, in public, before the assembled guests and mourners, and not somewhere behind closed doors in a crematorium, as it is often the case today. Now, of course, there is another setback for us trying to understand how the Romans buried their dead in Cologne. Greystones are wonderful building material if you have no scruples, and later and especially darker times should put such scruples aside. That's why after 2000 years often only those small Roman gravestones have been left to us that were forgotten, spilled by heavy rainfall or rediscovered in buildings where they served as building material. In one case, however, we are lucky, which is as phenomenal as the finding of the mosaic described in the intro. It is the tomb of a Roman man called Publicius. Publicius probably died around 40 CE, and probably already during his lifetime he built himself a tomb almost enormous 15 meters slash 16 yards high, which looks like a tower. A rectangular pedestal already takes up one third of the whole monument. On the sides of the pedestal there are columns in Ionic Greek style. And on the pedestal it is also written who owns this tomb. As I said, it's far from my preference to treat or examine gravestones all day long, but they are often the only source that have survived from that time. And fortunately for us, Publicius had his inscription written on his tomb. It's the only way we can even know what his name was and how he lived. We'll come back to the content of the inscription in just a moment, I promise. A small Corinthian temple has been built on the pedestal. In the entrance of this small temple there are three statues showing three people. Publicius himself, of course, his daughter Paula, and his freed slave Lucius Publicius Modestus. The latter person alone can tell us so much about life in Roman society. Apparently, the slave had been so highly esteemed by Publicius that he had given him his freedom and a space at the burial place. As usual, the freedman took the name of his former master, hence the almost identical sounding name of the freedman. In ancient Rome, even slaves could enjoy social advancement, even if only for very few. Funnily enough, during the reconstruction of the tomb, not Publius' statue, but the best preserved statue was placed in the middle of the small temple. It shows the freedman of the same name. A pointed roof completes the tomb at the top. Let us come back to the inscription, which is partly preserved on the pedestal. It says, To Lucius Publicius, son of Lucius, from the electoral district of Tarotina, veteran of the 5th legion, the Larks, erected to his will and to his daughter Paula and to the still living, there's an empty space, Modestus and Lucius Publicius. This grave will not pass to the air. The exact inscription is, as I said, incomplete, and of course there is some dispute as to whether this is the correct translation. Let's just assume for the moment that this is the correct translation. This short inscription tells us a lot, and in this way we can roughly trace Publicius' life. 
The man with the full name Lucius Publicius was born and grew up somewhere between Rome and Naples. This corresponds to the area of the Roman electoral district Terratina that is mentioned in the inscription. So Publicius is a classical Roman from Italy. He must have come from very modest circumstances because the Roman army was mainly recruited from this class at that time regarding the common legionaries. Mostly it was young Italian men from the countryside or small communities who joined the legions. Long gone were the days when just the citizens of the city of Rome itself would join the army ranks. Our Publicius is a good example of this. He served in the 5th Roman legion called Alauda, its Latin for Lux. Then 25 years of service passed. After that he was a man in his early 40s and had received a sum of money for his honorable and long service. It was probably at this very moment that the Roman army was advertising the veterans colony on the Rhine, our Roman Cologne. At that time it was still called the Oppidum Ubiorum, you know Cologne's first name in ancient times. We do not know exactly when Publicis lived, but the tomb was probably built not later than 42 CE. Whether Publicis was already dead then is also difficult to say. As I said, death was rather culturally accepted in everyday life. It was not macabre at all to build your tomb already during your lifetime. But a simple legionary as Publicis had been, even if he had survived 25 years of service, would hardly have been so rich to build such a big tomb. Publicis used his payment at the end of his service and did not become just a simple farmer in Gaul or here in Lower Germania like many of his comrades. He instead used his money as starting capital to make his fortune as a merchant. And he must have done so successfully because otherwise we could not talk about his imposing big tomb. One thing stands out regarding his tomb. There is no visible mention of a wife, but he had a daughter after all. Well, there could be several reasons. Maybe the wife was mentioned further down in the inscription, you know, there was an empty space when I read it to you, and the corresponding stone cube was lost in the course of history, or his wife died not a short time before him and was buried in a tomb of her own. These are only two theories about which this science of history passionately argues about. Since all this is told here figuratively, you can probably already guess it. I have, of course, put a picture of the tomb on the website of this podcast. Look it up on the historyofcologne.wordpress.com. It is very impressive to look at. The museum where they put it at is currently renovated like literally all historical museums in Cologne. And unfortunately, the corona crisis made it impossible to visit the tomb at the time I created this episode anyway. I also looked in my old pictures I had stored on my PC, but unfortunately I couldn't find any from previous visits to the Roman Germanic Museum. The tomb of Publicius was found in the 1960s, in post-World War II Cologne. It was an archaeological world sensation back then. A few hobby archaeologists gradually uncovered the tomb after they had found it when they were trying to build on their property in today's southern part of suburban Cologne. At that time, in the 1960s, there was no law on the protection of archaeological monuments yet. So the owners of the property were free to decide on their find. The antiquated Prussian excavation law of 1920 even allowed them to do so. They first opened a private museum in the basement of their house. 
Despite the commitment of the house owners who were just hobby archaeologists after all, it was clear that this was not an ideal way to secure such an ancient treasure. In addition, there were numerous offers abroad by many art collectors and museums with very large sums of money who wanted to buy the tomb. It is solely thanks to the loyalty and local patriotism of the property owners that the tomb of Publicius remained in Cologne and was sold to the city in the year 1970. But at least they had it paid for with 500,000 Deutsche Mark, at that time an enormous sum of money. But in no way do I want to accuse the landowners of greed, as some people did in the past. Even in his old age, one of the still surviving landowners is still scientifically occupied with the tomb that he started to dig up over 55 years ago. Since then, the tomb has been reconstructed and is now in the Roman Germanic Museum of Cologne. Due to the renovation of the museum and Corona as mentioned, I could not personally take pictures there for the companion post of this podcast. Here I must rely on freely licensable pictures for it again. Whew. I've been dawdling too much again, haven't I? We never even got to the city walls on our walk. We are still outside of town looking at tombstones, oh dear. We should get moving quickly. But that's the way it was. If you approached Rome Cologne and wrote, the first thing you saw before you entered the city was the extensive number of tombs at the edge of the road. And I will also put a picture on my webpage to show you how it probably looked like. Let's clear up one final question. How is it that such a large tomb like the one of Publicius has survived the 2000 years of history that have passed over this city since then? The Roman Germanic Museum is full of Roman gravestones, but most are hardly bigger than a sheet of paper. But a tomb that was 50 meters high, well, probably an accident was the reason. Maybe the tomb had been built on a cavity, which at some point collapsed under the weight of the tomb. Maybe a massive rainfall or flooding also caused the tomb to spill. Until well into the 20th century, it was quite common for areas of Cologne to be underwater, sometimes several times a year, because of the Rhine flooding. As a child, I myself still remember the 100-year flood in 1995. But we, the people of Cologne, have to live with that, because the Rhine was there long before us. Why don't we just keep walking down the street, as I have promised at the beginning of this episode? Remember, we are approaching the city from the north, coming from the road that leads to today's noise in the north. After talking all about him, we don't actually see Publicius' grave here. It was exactly on the opposite side of the city limits in the south. Where it stood today is the busy southern part of Cologne, which is part of today's old town of Cologne. But this is just a mind game here, so let's move along. We are slowly approaching the northern gate of the Roman city wall. It's a little bit jammed here. Many carts with goods are blocking our way. They all want to enter the city to supply it with the important agricultural goods of the region. Here and there we also find Germanic merchants from the other side of the Rhine, who are on their way to the capital of the Roman province of Lower Germania. But that traffic jam can be of no concern to us. We go on foot and can simply walk past these carts. Nobody will be angry with us for that either, because in such cases there are two side entrances for pedestrians like us at the city gate, next to the main gate, for people with carts. 
probably one of those two side entrances was for going in and the other was for going out. And I was aware that the northern gate of the Roman city wall was chosen for this episode. Because you can still see a little bit of it nowadays, in public. One archway of a side entrance is still in the exact same place in today's cityscape. It is the side gate, which I already mentioned in the previous episode about Trajan's visit to Cologne. I will post a picture of it on the homepage of this podcast. Above the main gate itself, for the carts, the letters CCAA are carved in the main arch, the abbreviation for Colonia Claudia Ara Agrippinensium, the Roman name of Cologne. The archway of this main gate can still be seen today in the Roman Germanic Museum, but yes, I have said it many times, it is currently closed. The city guard who is doing his job here is looking at us to see if we might be unwanted folk. But we have no problems and can enter through the side gate easily. Why should we get in trouble anyway? This is a peaceful time for Roman Cologne. Vitalius' rebellion and the turmoil of the Batavian revolt are some time behind us now. Emperor Trajan had secured the Roman Empire and expanded it to its then unknown borders, starting a golden age for the whole empire for many decades to come. The Rhine River as a border between the Romanized world in the west and the so-called barbaric world in the east is also quiet. The Romans no longer try to keep the Germanic tribes in check with just sheer military force. Rather, the Romans exploit the disunity of the Germanic tribes and played off skillfully. If a Germanic tribe becomes too powerful, the Romans simply supported and financed a rival tribe. If this rival tribe then gains too much power themselves, the game starts all over again. You look for another challenger. At the same time, Cologne engages in lively trade with the Germanic tribes east of the Rhine. Roman goods like wine, ceramics, which Cologne is famous for in the whole ancient world, and others are highly sought after. Conversely, the Romans also desire many goods from these so-called barbarians. Furs and wood are among them. Germanic slaves are also in quite some demand. And I know that sounds as stereotypical as it can be, but especially the hair of blonde-haired Germanic women is much sought after by the female Roman upper class. Such a blonde wig is much easier than having long and dyed hair. Some Roman women even bleach their hair additionally with duff feces to make them look more blonde. I am not joking. As we look around, walking through the city, we see different kinds of people. It is not surprising that we see Germans and Gauls beside Romanized Colonials, Romans and Italians. Some Romans wear Germanic Gallic clothing. We are far away from the Mediterranean climate. A tunic, the normal shirt of the Roman citizens, including bare legs, would be much too cold here except in summer. We haven't talked about them for a long time. How are our beloved Ubi? We haven't heard from them for a while. How were they dressed, for example? Well, we can't really tell anymore. As was evident during the Batavian revolt, several decades earlier, before our walk today, it was already difficult to distinguish clearly between the urban population of Cologne in categories of simply being Roman and Ubian. It seems that the Romanization of the Ubi was quite extensive. In the year 157 CE, it is the last time in the historical sources that you can hear anything about the Ubi as a separate ethnicity. Romans, Italians, 
other new citizens from all over the empire gradually emerged with the Ubian population and other local Germans in Cologne and the surrounding area to even form a new ethnic group. A new ethnic group including all the cultures I just mentioned. This did not just happen in Cologne, it happened in many places, all through Gaul up until the Rhine. Historical science calls this new merged culture the Gallo-Roman culture. But wait, weren't the Ubi not Germanic? Or were they Gauls now? Well here again we notice how through these boundaries between Gallic and Germanic are in the ancient Rhineland, two terms that were made up by the Romans and not by those two cultures themselves. We already talked about this difficult topic in the episode about Agrippa and the Ubii for those who want to catch up. Nevertheless, the Gallic and or Germanic elements of this new Gallo-Romanic culture has been more pronounced in Cologne than the Roman element of it. This is in stark contrast to Southern Gaul, today's Aquitaine and today's Auvergne. Auvergne? My, I, I don't know how to speak French. And today's Auvergne in Southern France where the Roman element of this culture was much more pronounced, even long after the fall of Rome in the 5th century. This is one of the many reasons why French is a Latin language after all, and why places like Lower Germania mostly kept Indo-Germanic languages like today's modern German or Dutch. So, we are now inside the city walls of Roman Cologne. Directly at the entrance, there are numerous snack bars with cookshops and restaurants called Capone. Not every household in Cologne has a cooking place, and so these snack bars are important for the local supply of the inhabitants of Roma Cologne. After our long walk in front of the wall, we deserve a refreshment. So while we are eating our flat bread with sausages and watered-down wine, we can already see a magnificent estate here in the north of the city. Something tells us that this is the place where there must be this gorgeous mosaic that we talked about here at the beginning of the episode. We hastily finish our meal and walk over the main street that we already knew from the last episode, the Cardo Maximus, the today's Hohestrasse. We walk on that road a few blocks to the south, but already shortly after we turn left to the east. Here we finally stand in front of the splendid mansion of a rich owner. The outside walls of the building delimit the property like a castle. This house indeed appears to us to be like a fortress. There are almost no windows. The few of them are very small and only very sparingly embedded in the walls. This is how almost all the houses of the nobility which bring the Mediterranean architectural style to the Rhine look like. Life took place inwards. The walls were supposed to provide protection, but at the same time they were also supposed to ensure that it remained cool inside and conversely warm in winter. All rooms were built around an inner courtyard, another typical feature of this architectural style. The house itself is already a bit older as it might appear to us. It was probably first built during the lifetime of Agrippina, so many decades before, and since then it has been expanded and rebuilt several times. For a little mind game of our time travel, I ask that we be a little more flexible in our timeline. We walk for this in the Roman Cologne of the years 100 to 250 CE. I know that is a comparatively large time span, but it is the golden time of Roman Cologne, and this is what we want to explore with our walk here. The entrance of the property is quite small considering the size of the estate. 
it's so big it takes up an entire block of buildings. Maybe as a recollection we should remember the town design. Cologne was laid out like a Roman military camp. All streets ran parallel in east-west or north-south direction to each other and cross at right angles. This made the division of the blocks of flats quite clear and simple. They all were rectangular. Especially modern cities in the US are a good example of this, especially Manhattan and New York City. From a bird's eye view it looked like a chessboard from the pattern. And this property took up a whole block of flats like that, a whole innumerous 3500 square meters or 38,000 square feet. My apartment is not even 1 40th that size, by the way. At the entrance we approach a slave, who always keeps watch here. Fortunately his owner has renounced the practice common in ancient Rome of tying this gate slave to the wall with a chain around his neck. Hopefully this is a sign that his owner treats him well and therefore he doesn't fear that his slave will run away while being on post. The slave steps inside the entrance and notifies another slave that we have arrived. We are immediately invited inside. We quickly realize that this property was built exactly for such purposes to receive and entertain guests like us. Almost all rooms here seem to have been built for the pure representation of the landlord. In the house entrance the death masks of the ancestors of the landlord are exhibited. As said before, completely normal in antiquity to represent death as a permanent element in everyday life. A small home altar stands in the middle of the entrance area. Small clouds of smoke rise from it. Such home altars are often found in Roman houses. They are dedicated to the gods who are supposed to protect their homes from fire and devastation, as well as their inhabitants from illness or other misfortune. And here comes the owner of the estate, coming towards us, beaming with joy. Slaves wash our feet while we stand before him without direct request. Other slaves hand us some snacks on small plates. Actually. We have already strangled ourselves well before, but with what we are offered we simply cannot say no. The Romans were really the inventors of tapas. We are served mushrooms, roasted snails, imported mussels, pickled fish and even birds. And is that a baked dormouse that is being offered to us on a plate? It really is. With enthusiasm the owner of the house leads us across the large inner courtyard into his dining room. As we enter, we have to get used to the darker surroundings, but then we are astonished. At our feet lies a mosaic that fills the whole room. Of course we do not understand the enthusiastic landlord as he talks about it. He speaks a Latin, which is even far away from my knowledge of school Latin. But it seems he is visibly proud of his piece of art on the floor of his dining hall. We are looking at 1.5 million mosaic pieces that have been installed here. In the middle is a representation of the god of the wine Dionysus. A total of 27 multicolored scenes show animals like birds, here and there, fruits and scenes representing the four seasons. Each of these 1.5 million stones was laid by hand. It is one of the largest remaining antique mosaics in existence. And here we come full circle to the beginning of this episode. When the mosaic was found by chance in 1941, in the middle of World War II, it was immediately covered with sand, so it survived the bombings of World War II unscathed. 
How it came that the music survived 1800 years, well hidden underground, is another story, I don't want to spoil that. We will get there soon. The discovery of that music was so significant that after the war it was decided to build a new museum which was to represent Cologne's Roman and Germanic past, directly above this mosaic. There, it is still today, its original place right next to the cathedral. And on that occasion, the tomb of Publicius, which was later excavated in the 1960s, as I told you, was placed in the same room where the mosaic was found. The circumstances which led to the discovery of the Dionysus mosaic were oppressive. For example, I had dealt with the question of whether forced laborers from occupied countries of the German Reich were used in the construction of the bunker at the cathedral, but I did not find any information for or against this. Nevertheless, for the exploration of ancient history of the city of Cologne, the discovery of the mosaic during the construction of this bunker in 1941 was a stroke of luck without equal. I myself still remember how the mosaic gained international attention for a short time. At the 1999 World Economic Summit in Cologne, the mosaic served for the first time after many centuries again as a dining room for the assembled heads of state from all over the world. A heavy acrylic plate was laid over the mosaic beforehand. Personally, I would never have approved this, even though the mosaic was originally made for a dining room. As always, there would be so much more to tell about these topics. But unfortunately, time is running out again, and possibly your attention after so much input as well. So, let's leave it for today, with a walk through ancient Cologne. We are going to get something to eat here in the house and continue our tour next week. We are not in a hurry after all. I would be happy to hear and see you again. Thank you as always and Auf Wiedersehen. And hey, just a short message at the end if you like this podcast. Rate it, subscribe it, or follow me on social media on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you. Bye-bye.